This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Series 6 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. Our first episode is on narcissism. This is a word I hear often. People calling others a narcissist and often diagnosing them without really knowing them at all. In truth, it's more correct to say someone has narcissistic tendencies or qualities. And even then, it would take a trained professional quite a bit of time of talking to said narcissist to come to that conclusion. So it's really one of those terms that's misused and overused and not properly understood at all. And it's for that reason I really wanted to do a podcast on it. Today I'm talking to Mark Varmeyer, who we heard in Series 5 on the subject of belonging. Mark is a UKCP registered integrative psychotherapist who is very psychoanalytically informed. And he has a special interest in this subject. He's in the middle of writing a book about narcissism and often writes about it on his website. We talk in depth about what narcissistic tendencies look like, how to spot someone with narcissistic qualities, what may cause someone to have them. And also we mention the person who is often forgotten in the myth of Narcissus, Echo, and the part they play. I hope you enjoy it and come away with a renewed understanding of what narcissism means. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via ACAST supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Mark, hello and welcome back to Series 6. Hello, Annalisa. Thanks so much for having me back. Not at all. We talked about doing this and one of the reasons certainly I was keen and I think you were keen on doing something on narcissism is that it's a phrase or word that's very very overused and I think misused so can we kick off with me asking you what is narcissism? It's obviously the million dollar question isn't it when I think about narcissism I think about it in as a clinical term and one that I would use and colleagues of mine use to understand the personality structure of a patient. And I wonder if perhaps the simplest, the most simple definition I can give you, which is a jumping off point, is that 
narcissism relates to a person's personality style. And these particular personality styles are organized around the maintaining of self-esteem by getting affirmation from outside themselves. Now, that might sound like a slightly odd way of putting it, but self-esteem lies at the core of who we are, how we feel about ourselves. And so there is a particular attribute of people who have what I like to think of as a narcissistic style of personality where they're very deflated internally. They don't really have much of a sense of self. And so they are constantly needing to be shored up by external validation, be that through other people or through perhaps shiny things they buy, for example. One analogy that might be helpful in thinking about it is if we imagine a building, so the personality is a building, people who are narcissistic have scaffold around the building that they constantly need scaffolding in order to hold them up. Otherwise they will, in building terms, collapse, but what we might say deflate. So the sense of self is entirely contingent on the external world reflecting back to them how wonderful they are. Can't we all be a bit like that at times, though, and need sort of propping up? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's fundamental to understanding, really. I think what's gone wrong from this being a very succinct clinical term that we use to understand somebody. And unfortunately, what seems to happen with some mental health terms and narcissism, I'd probably put at the top of the list of this, is that in popular culture, it's become twisted and it's become a descriptor of particular behaviours that people don't like, and even so far as becoming a term of abuse. But yes, of course, we all need affirmations from the outside world. We all need reflections back from friends, family, the wider community that give us a sense of being okay. But I think where the difference lies is that where for Somebody who has a mix of personality styles and functions quite well in the world, whilst that is important, it isn't an obsession. It isn't their primary requisite. So if they're not getting that for a while, they don't collapse. They don't fall into a psychological space where they don't really have a sense of themselves. If we think about the two extremes of how perhaps narcissistically structured people conceptualize themselves in the world, mm-hmm. On the one hand, we've got grandiosity, and that's probably what a lot of people think about when we talk about narcissistic people, that they think of themselves as grand and wonderful and entitled and so forth. But for every narcissistically structured person who sees themselves as grand, inside them is a very self-conscious, shame-faced little child. So this if you like is the polarity or these two binary positions these two contradictions that constitute somebody who is narcissistic where they need to present to the world either that they're grand wonderful entitled the best there is to shore up their defenses at feeling very very inadequate internally or conversely they present to the world as what we might say is quite depressed but inside they feel very entitled to being living a grand life, achieving great things. They feel deeply envious towards people who they see as achieving more than them or being healthier or better looking than them. So somebody who's narcissistic doesn't actually present in the outside world in the same way. And I think this is where the word has got very disconnected from its clinical meaning. 
Because often I see it talking about people and I think actually from what you've said, that person just sounds egocentric. What's the difference? I really like the word ecocentric as a word to describe someone's behaviour. I think part of the problem that we face with mental health is that there has been a steady shift towards seeing people's behaviours as being representative of their personality. And often that simply isn't the case. So I would suggest that the word egocentric describes how somebody is behaving towards somebody else. So I think it's possible for all of us at times to behave in egocentric ways, perhaps if we're feeling under pressure, perhaps if we're stressed. And also, I would suggest that egocentric behaviour is really quite ordinary as part of the development of a young person. So many teenagers, those listeners of yours who have teenage children, will be aware that their teenage children at time can behave in what seem like very selfish, very entitled, very self-centred ways. That's a developmental egocentricity, which through appropriate parenting and appropriate boundaries and being embedded in society, one would hope they grow out of. But it's certainly something we're all capable of. So what's the difference between being egocentric and narcissistic? I think this is where the words have got conflated in popular culture, often where people refer to narcissism and indeed the plethora of books that have been published. And there are so many books out there about surviving narcissism, escaping a narcissistic partner and so forth. And really, I'm not sure that that is an accurate use of the word narcissism. So the difference would be if we are around somebody who is behaving in an egocentric way, then on a fundamental level, they're not really thinking about us. So relationships are comprise a minimum of two people. And for a relationship to be successful, there needs to be the capacity on both sides for each to think about the other's experience and each to think about the other's feelings and each to think about what the other person might be saying. Egocentricity, I would suggest, is where one person is unable, unwilling, or too overwhelmed, or too stressed, or too preoccupied to really think about who is in front of them, who they're interacting with, whether that's a friend, a family member, or indeed a stranger queuing up to board a plane or a train. I think actually the plane example is probably quite a good one where people are hanging around in airports, they're desperately hoping there won't be a delay, they're frustrated, they're irritated, and then there's the mad rush for boarding and people are quite happy to elbow each other out of the way you know that would be an example of egocentric behavior but I certainly don't think that people rushing to the gate and jostling for position in the queue are necessarily narcissists indeed I don't think there's any way we could possibly say that looking around at people around us it's very very difficult if nigh on impossible to be able to pick up someone and say ah that person over there that person's a narcissist. I, I don't think it's possible. And as a clinician, I think it would be irresponsible for me to suggest I could do that. I get a sense of somebody's personality style through working with them, but that certainly doesn't come about in the first session. So how can you tell if someone's a narcissist? Well, that's a very good question. Psychotherapists are trained to be able to tell if somebody's a narcissist, but I sort of wonder 
whether we're getting a bit caught up, not you and I, because we're talking about it for a very specific reason, but in popular culture, whether we're getting a little bit caught up with the word and a fear about what we imagine narcissists to be. I don't think there is a way to tell if somebody is a narcissist in the purest clinical sense of the word. What we can tell is whether somebody is capable of relating to us whether that's in the moment or as I've suggested earlier over the longer term. So when I'm talking with my patients about this, some of whom perhaps do, I'm going on the basis of what they are telling me. So patients who perhaps have got partners who have got narcissistic traits or a narcissistic personality style, rather than focusing too much on the word, I think it's more helpful to be thinking about and asking the question, well, the person you're in relationship with, are they able to relate in a two-person world or a one-person world? And people who can relate in a two-person world, and hopefully your listeners will be able to get a sense of this from our conversation where there's a to and fro. You're listening to me, I'm listening to you, you're asking questions, I might pose a question back. So there's a capacity for us to listen to each other. There's hopefully also a capacity for us to disagree with each other if one says something that the other doesn't agree with. That's an example of a two-person relationship and that's a healthy, mature relating style. There are lots of instances where people have got personality styles or structures where there's a type of developmental arrest where they find it very difficult to relate in a two-person world. And one group of these people are people who are narcissistic, but it's not exclusive to them. So, you know, it's an ordinary developmental process as a child to move from a world where it's defined very much by us. So everything is about us. When we cry, our primary carer comes and they feed us or they change our nappy or they attend to our every whim. And so it should be for young children. But there is also a process that takes place where as that child starts to get a little bit older and move through life, and in sort of around 18 months to two years where that child needs to make a shift from a world where everything is about him or her to a world where they need to take into consideration, frustratingly, I'm sure, that the world is populated by other people. Indeed, their primary carer also has needs. So in clinical terms, in psychological terms, we might think of this as a shift from the one-person world being a world of symbiosis and grandiosity to a two-person world, which is about separateness and individuation, and what I like to think of as the reality of existence. So... Certainly, people who've got a narcissistic structure are stuck in this world of symbiosis and grandiosity, where everything is about them, where other people are either an extension of them or simply don't exist. But by no means is it the only personality style where this plays out. So that's why I wonder how helpful it is, really, that we collectively, popular culture and so forth, have got so caught up with this term narcissism and identifying whether someone is a narcissist and how to survive narcissists and this whole rhetoric around it. Now, I've got some ideas why that might be, but I, I still don't think it's particularly helpful. Why do you think it might be? If we think about how in popular culture narcissists are portrayed and thought about, I think quite often there is 
a secret envy towards narcissists, this idea perhaps that narcissists are winners. Narcissists are the ones who can just go out there and they can get what they want and they won't take any prisoners. And probably part of all of us, if we're completely honest about it, envies the idea of being able to ruthlessly operate in the world, not have to contend with other people's feelings, not have to negotiate things and uh, compromise with others. And take it to its sort of nth degree, not really have to contend with reality, which is you know, deeply frustrating and limiting for all of us mere mortals. So I think that in the collective, there is a fascination and envy towards this idea, this it's almost like a fairy tale idea of what a narcissist is. And we see it quite often in the press and in the media, there's also a secret glee then when these people who we see as all powerful and perhaps label as narcissistic have their downfall, which says to me that there is a degree of envy there. So I think I think this is perhaps part of the reason this plays out. Other personality styles who also aren't really able to relate very well, so don't operate in a two-person world, don't tend to exhibit the same traits as people who are narcissistically structured, particularly this sort of grandiosity that we've come to associate with narcissistic people. And so, frankly, I don't think there's the same degree of envy towards them because they fly beneath the radar. We don't sort of see them as successful. We don't really see them as winners. And it just has a different connotation. You're talking about personality arrest. That really interests me because years ago, when I was doing one of the interviews for my column, I was speaking to a psychotherapist and we were talking about narcissism. And she tried to explain it to me thus, which is that it's that period which you've alluded to when a child has to separate out because in the first couple of years they see themselves and the mother, usually the mother but the primary caregiver, as one and they have to separate out. So with narcissism, what goes wrong there? I mean, she explained it as sort of like a parent, caregiver, who doesn't let the child separate out. What do you think about that? I think that's a really lovely way of putting it, a very succinct way of putting it. Most psychotherapists out there now work in a relational context and understand that human beings are... From when we are in utero, we are entirely relational. You know, we take longer than any other mammal on the planet to reach adulthood and technically to become independent. I think where our understanding of where this starts to go wrong in those early years, around the age of sort of one, one and a half and two, is that a parent tends to see their child as either somehow too much or too little. So for example, a parent views their child as too energetic and tells a child off for that, or conversely, not energetic enough, or too precocious, or not precocious enough, or too slow. So you, you get the general gist. But what happens where a child learns and understands through these repeated interactions with a parent that she is perhaps not right, she's either too much or she's too little, is the message she gets is that I'm not okay in how I am. And so this leads to what we might call a false self-compensation. But essentially, the child constructs a false self, which goes something like, OK, 
I'm not allowed to be who I really am. I'm not allowed to express my appetite, my emotions, my needs. And in order to hold on to my parent, which is my primary objective, I should become who they need me to be. So in those very, very early years, this child develops this false compensatory personality to adapt to what the parent wants them to be. That's the fundamental, if you like, the narcissistic injury, this core injury that has happened to the child that then will most likely lead to that child developing and embedding in a narcissistic personality style. Now, I can imagine lots of parents thinking, shit, I've done that. I've told my child they do this or do that. Mm. Does that automatically mean that child's going to grow up to be a narcissist? What are we talking about here? No, not at all. I think you know, a parent's job is impossible. You know, I don't think there's any harder job than being a parent because no matter what you do, you simply cannot get it right. If we go back to the one-person world versus the two-person world, so the one-person world is defined by symbiosis and grandiosity. So in other words, the child doesn't really know the difference between herself and her mother and developmentally needs to move over to the real world, almost might define as a, a sort of depressive position where they have to acknowledge the existence of reality and acknowledge the fact that their mother is not part of them. They can't control their mother and that they need to start to negotiate their needs. You know, so a parent needs to allow a child to be in a merger with them, be in this symbiotic place. A parent needs to be able to tolerate a child's grandiosity. And then also, as this developmental process unfolds, help that child to separate and individuate. And that's going to be punctuated by a lot of conflict, a lot of tantrums, a lot of sulking at times. And the way a parent does that is by being consistent and holding boundaries. So going back to your question, you know, should a parent not be telling a child off if they are too much or encouraging a child if they're too withdrawn? No, of course they should. But I think what is key in this is what is the objective behind what the parent is doing? So if the objective is fundamentally about I am here to help my child inhabit their world in a way that they can discover who they are and become somebody who can interact with other people, then those are very, very good reasons for putting and holding those boundaries in place. If, on the other hand, a parent is looking to mould the child in their image, so in other words, wants an extension of themselves or perhaps wants a mirror of themselves, that can be where it leads to the development of a sort of narcissistic personality style. And one of the archetypes of this in a parent might be, I'm going to use the phrase mother, but it could be any parent. And, and again, bearing in mind it's an archetype, would be the stage mother who is very narcissistically invested. So in other words, extremely invested for their own self-esteem mm. reasons in that child achieving in a particular arena now that might well be on stage but it might also be you know you will become a doctor and from the earliest ages telling that child that that's the only thing that's going to be accepted and that he or she must become a doctor and everything is geared towards that I, I think that child is likely to end up with probably quite a narcissistic structure and is certainly going to grow up not feeling confident about expressing who they are. And is that because their parent is themselves narcissistic and yeah. has never been taught to separate out? So it's like a kind of genetic 
inevitability? It can be an inevitability. I mean, this is, I think, where psychotherapy comes into the picture, which is, you know, everybody who crosses my threshold and any other psychotherapist essentially has had some deficits in childhood. Now, the old sort of cliche of, oh, well, it's all about blaming the mother or blaming the parent. You know, that's not necessarily accurate because all sorts of things can happen in a child's childhood that can impact on the development of their personality, including illness or including a parent's death and so forth. I think it's fair to say that in the majority of cases where we have somebody who has got a narcissistic structure, it's because their parents had a narcissistic structure. And so narcissism does breed narcissism. But equally, there are people who have got narcissistic structures who come to therapy, perhaps not the more defended ones, and it can take a while for them to come, something we tend to see around middle age more. But if people are willing to do the work and be in a relationship with a psychotherapist where actually they can't, well, they will play out those narcissistic ways of being, but the role of the therapist is obviously to appropriately and empathically challenge those, then change is possible. So the chain can be broken, as it can be with any sort of trauma, psychological, emotional trauma that is passed down through the generations. It's not just narcissism where this plays out. It, It plays out with any type of trauma. Because one of the things you were saying about if a child is seen as not enough or too much, then surely they must see themselves as very separate to the parent because they're not like them. Mm. Can you explain that a bit more? Because that, to me, seems contradictory. I can absolutely see why that seems contradictory. Yes, that's a very good point. We have to bear in mind that we're talking about a child here and not somebody who's already got their own sense of self, their own identity, their ability to tolerate difference. We're talking about a little person whose entire personality is being shaped by the interaction with those closest to him or her. And in the majority of cases, that would be the parents. And out of the parents, it remains customary that in the majority of cases, that still tends to be the mother, particularly in those early months and the early year of life. So A child's fundamental focus is on safety. And by safety, I don't mean, well, I do mean physical safety in a way, but what I'm really talking about is holding on to that attachment, holding on to that parent. So a child is absolutely invested in keeping their parent happy. And if a child grows up and through daily interactions that are repeated, you know, in all sorts of different circumstances, that child learns that, actually, my parent is pretty consistent and my parent is validating who I am. That's not the same as validating all my behaviour and condoning it. But my parent is validating my experience. My parent is able to say to me, I can see you're feeling really angry when they're not angry themselves. Or my parent is able to tolerate me feeling really energetic when they're not. Then what that child learns is, I'm allowed free expression and it doesn't jeopardise the relationship. I mean, I'm putting this into words. And of course, for a young child, this isn't, it's not conceptualised in thought in the way you and I are conceiving it. Of course, it's not conscious, is it? But nevertheless, it impacts if it's repeated. Absolutely. It's a pattern of relating and this child absorbs that pattern of relating. So if the child recognises that actually they're living in a world that's quite precarious. They're living in a world where it's not really safe to freely express themselves because their parent will 
voice discontent and that voicing of discontent could be literally telling them off but it could also be a withdrawal of love or it could be an irritation or it could be a facial expression again let's bear in mind we're not talking about one off or two off incidents we're talking about these really repetitious ways of interacting with one's child that child learns that eh, this is unsafe i better become what makes my parent happy and this is where this false self develops. It's a term that was coined just after the Second World War by a psychoanalyst called Winnicott. He suggested that children develop this sort of shell persona with these kinds of parents. And the shell persona mirrors back to the parent what the parent wants to see. But of course, behind that is a child who feels very self-conscious, very unsure about themselves and filled with shame. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So if you have to develop a false self because your real self seems unacceptable, is it inevitable that that leads to narcissism? I think once a false self has been developed, false self is very much a term used in the context of narcissism. So other personality styles, let's take somebody, let's say, for example, a depressive personality style or obsessive compulsive personality style or a paranoid personality style, you know, the more rigid end of the spectrum these sorts of people aren't very good necessarily at operating in two-person worlds because if we have to contend with somebody who is different to us who has different views different feelings 
different way of expressing themselves, it invariably brings up anxiety for us all. That That's just how it is. There is something very, very specific about narcissism where this false self is developed as a compensation for actually feeling utterly inadequate. And that isn't present in quite the same way in other personality styles. So one could argue that, you know, every single personality style that we have or that we know of or these names that we've given to them because let's bear in mind we're talking about something here that can't be seen nobody can actually physically grab hold of a personality because it's linked to the mind and nobody's ever seen a mind but with all all these different ways of relating to ourself and the world to all our different personalities they all have at their core the same function which is to preserve self-esteem and that's a narcissistic function in itself. So when we talk about somebody being narcissistic, what we're really describing is how it is to feel like that person, what their core is like. And this again brings up this huge discrepancy between, I think, how this term's used in popular culture and how clinicians like myself would think about it. Because when I think about somebody who's got a narcissistic personality style or arguably a narcissistic personality disorder, although again, there's no consensus on exactly, you know, where that boundary lies. I think about somebody who lives an astonishingly difficult life. It's a life that is punctuated by them constantly having to defend themselves against unbearable and intolerable feelings, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of anxiety, feelings of aloneness, I mean, it's no way to go through life. And the problem is that most people who've got a narcissistic structure, unlike, let's say, somebody who's obsessive compulsive or perhaps depressive or paranoid, people who've got a narcissistic structure don't tend to come to therapy because they are so invested in the false self. They're so invested in holding on to this image that they present to the world because what lies beneath that feels so terribly unbearable. Does a narcissist know they are a narcissist? Generally, no. Some people may have some clinical understanding, and I dare say there are clinicians out there who've got quite strong narcissistic edges, but most narcissists don't know they are narcissistic. And here's the crux of the issue. There are plenty of tests we can do, plenty of evaluations we can undergo that will tell us whether we're depressed. Now, how clinically useful they are is sort of secondary, but nonetheless, someone who is depressed tends to know they are depressed. I've been practicing now as a psychotherapist for well over a decade. I've never had somebody cross my threshold who said, hello, I'm here because I think I'm a narcissist, to use that awful term, or I've got a narcissistic structure. But what I have had happen is people cross my threshold who have said, I don't know what's wrong, but I seem to have lots of problems in my relationships and they're ongoing and I'm now 40, 50, whatever it is. And, you know, I think I, I think something might be wrong that I have had. And I think I, I think probably other clinicians would concur that if somebody with a narcissistic structure is going to present, it tends to present like that. One caveat to this is I'm I'm talking about the most sort of oh, garden variety narcissists, the ones we probably can all imagine who tend to present with quite a grandiose way of being in the world. 
people who present that sort of a false self, I'm the best, I'm better than everybody else, I deserve the best, I'm the one who should be at the front of the queue to board the plane, etc. Those people tend to have the paradox of having a very, very deflated core self. So they feel underneath that false self, if they can actually get in touch with these feelings, they feel very inadequate, they feel filled with shame, they feel filled with envy, and they're very self-conscious of this. We do get people who have got a narcissistic structure who look like they are depressed and they might well present as depressed and they might present as what might look like the opposite of narcissism. But where we start to dig into their fantasy world, which is obviously what therapy is about, you know, what, what do you think about? What do you imagine? Tell me about this interaction. How did you think about it? What starts to come out is this real sense of, the world's been unfair to me. I should have earned much more money. I should have been a doctor. I'm not a doctor because something was done to me rather than perhaps actually I didn't study hard enough and get the grades or, you know, so there's this, this, this covered up, this covert sense of entitlement that exists beneath the surface. So both these sides of the narcissist are all there, always there. It just depends which one is presenting outwardly into the world. And in popular culture, you know, the sort of archetype that is presented and thought about, which probably goes all the way back to, you know, if we're going to be thinking, where has this term come from? It probably goes all the way back to the original myth of Narcissus, of this young man who thought a lot of himself and everybody swooned at his feet and he was too good to let anybody get close to him. That's the narcissist that many of us think about when we hear the word. But if we do go briefly back to the myth, because I, I, I think this might be quite helpful to, to think about where this has come from. In the original myth of Narcissus, it's been depicted in art as Narcissus staring at his reflection in the pool, in the pond, in the woods. And in other words, this idea of self-love has come out of that. So, oh, Narcissus is filled with himself. He just loves himself. He just wants to stare at his reflection. Yes, it's often mixed up with vanity, isn't it? When people are vain, they say they're narcissists. Isn't narcissistic. it? Yeah, you're right. And I think this is probably where the myth is hugely helpful. But I think if you take that one element of the myth out of context, oh, well, narcissists, they just want to stare at their own reflection and they're vain and they just love themselves and therefore narcissism is self-love. Well, it's actually a really twisted and, and reductionist way of thinking about it because the reason that narcissist is staring at his reflection is because he's terrified of relationship and he's terrified of being known and he can't bear anybody else being close to him, but at the same time, he can't bear to be alone. Now that is the crux of what it's like to live with a narcissistic personality style. A quote I read the other day, which I thought was a really beautiful way of putting it, much, much better than I can put it, is that the narcissist needs other people desperately, but their love is very shallow. And I thought that was a really powerful way of putting it. And it's this impossible position that the narcissists find themselves in, which is I need others around me because I need this reflection back. I need others to tell me how wonderful I am. I need others to adore me, but I can't bear to let anyone close. I can't bear to be loved because to be loved is to be truly seen. And that's too shame-filled. There's the fear of annihilation in there. So in the original myth of Narcissus, there's a character who gets forgotten. The myth is entitled When Echo Meets Narcissus. But Echo is the antithesis of 
narcissist. She's the opposite. She's somebody who, through a curse that was put on her by one of the Greek gods, she's lost her voice. All she can do is echo back the last words that somebody has said, hence why we now use the word echo in the context of an echoey room or echo chambers. An echo encounters narcissists and she echoes back what narcissist says and initially narcissists think she's wonderful and they try and find each other in the woods until echo throws her arms around narcissist and then he throws her off and he casts her away and says be gone you cannot have me and he eventually ends up staring at his reflection in the pool if we imagine a spectrum on the one hand we've got the archetype of the narcissist who operates in a one-person world and everything is about them and they can't see anyone else. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, we've got poor old Echo, who also operates in a one-person world, but everything is about the other. So Echo can't really express herself. She can't bring her needs into the mix in relationship. These archetypes are quite useful, I think. We move away from the clinical because, you know, let's be realistic, this myth was written 2,000 years ago, and I think these myths say something about our collective experience. So Ovid, who wrote the story of Echo and Narcissus, had noticed something about how people relate, and he'd written this story about it, which is profound. And we've got Echo who needs Narcissus, and Narcissus who needs Echo, but they both operate in these almost like silos, one-person worlds, neither can relate to the other. And then we've got some people say it's in the middle of the spectrum. I tend to think of it as a third position, which is this mature position. It's how do we contend with reality? How do we relate to others and be curious about their experience without meaning that that needs to be our experience, but also without annihilating their experience? So this is about tolerance of difference and curiosity about others. And that's really where empathy lives. And that goes right back to the beginning when we were talking about the child starting to separate out and the parent being able to tolerate those differences. With the false self, is that an attempt to control the narrative? Oh, that, that's interesting. Could you say some more about controlling the narrative? Well, I'm just thinking that if you have never been taught how to just be and let other people kind of come to their own conclusions, if you're very much sort of grandiose and taking the centre stage, that is a way of controlling the narrative, isn't it? Because you're mm. cherry-picking the bits you tell people. And I just wondered if that false self was, because if you're so afraid of people seeing the real you, whether consciously or unconsciously, if by creating a false self, you are controlling what people see. I've never heard somebody put it like that, but I really like that, Annalisa. I think it is. The way you've just described it, it absolutely is a way of controlling the narrative in my way of thinking about it, which is just slightly different terminology. I think it's about controlling reality. So maybe for, if we say somebody who is quite narcissistic, I know that's not a clinical way of putting it, but you know, clinical way might be pathologically narcissistic. Yes, they have an absolute need. It's not about desire. It's an existential need to control the narrative. And if you take that all the way towards the end of the spectrum, which would be sort of verging on psychotic states of narcissism, then it's about controlling reality, that the real world and how the real world is cannot be allowed in at any cost. So, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. 
What would be a psychotic state of narcissism? Well, a psychotic state of narcissism, if we think about how that person views the world, then it is viewing the world through a lens that is not realistic. So it's disconnected from reality. So psychosis is a very powerful denial of reality. So anybody who's psychotic, whether they're actively psychotic or perhaps have a, what we might think of as a psychotic structure, has a delusional way of viewing the world. And so if the personality style that is layered over this is narcissistic, then not only are they controlling the narrative, to use that wonderful term that you've come up with, but I think they're actually going as far as perhaps trying to control reality and they are denying the actual reality or the reality of other people. I'm slightly going to hesitate and ask you, given that, you know, there's Narcissus and Echo and they both needed each other, but Echo's basically there in terms of an audience. Mm. And as someone who has a podcast, which is kind of really about speaking to an audience, don't know what that says about me. But do you think we are becoming, as a society, given we have so many mediums with which to transmit and I want to come back to that word in a bit. Do you think we are becoming more narcissistic? Okay, so would you like me to just go back to what you said about yourself? Because I... Am I a narcissist? <laughs> am I going to diagnose you as a narcissist? <laughs> I'm really scared. <laughs> Absolutely not. And it would be very narcissistic of me to be able to presume to do that on the basis of <laughs> having had these conversations with you a few times. So, you know, let's think about it like this. It's easy to once again get drawn back into that. Well, this person is behaving this way, therefore they must be this. We all need expression of healthy narcissism, which another way of putting that is things that give us a sense of self-esteem. But that's very different to having a narcissistic personality. So it's more about the why than the what. I'm sure there are people out there who have podcasts. In fact, I can think of people, and perhaps your listeners can too, whose only reason for having a podcast or perhaps only reason for wanting to be in the media is so that they can be seen and get adoration reflected back at them and and then I think you know reality tv where it began with big brother and has extended from there onwards would be a good example of something that I would suggest it has got quite a narcissistic function in the more pathological sense but Let's think about your podcast or indeed me coming on your podcast or me writing articles or whatever it might be. This is embedded in the real world. You work really hard to do this. You're you're doing this because you want to gain a better understanding of what is this thing, narcissism, and you want to help inform your listeners. And it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning, I would imagine. I'm not, it's not my place to say that it does do that, but I, I imagine it does. I would have said that's probably why you do it and that's very different oh, yeah, no, it's yeah, a bit it, different it, it, it is it is thank you though do you think we are becoming more narcissistic as a society yeah there's some disagreement about this in terms of researchers so some research would say that we are becoming more narcissistic some would suggest we aren't i don't think that in terms of infant development or child development that we are breeding more people with narcissistic personalities However, it takes more than a parent or two parents or even extended family to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a child. Unfortunately, we don't live in these 
villages in the community sense of the word anymore. So then we're looking at, well, is something happening in our broader society, in our broader culture that might well be feeding this narcissistic tendency that perhaps all of us have. And in that sense, I think there's probably some evidence that that is indeed the case, but it's not just one thing. If we think about, I've used the word self-esteem a few times, perhaps we need to ask the question, well, what is self-esteem? And I think self-esteem is this innate sense of that I've got, I'm good enough, I'm allowed to take up place in the world, I'm able to engage with the culture and the world around me in meaningful ways so that I get feedback that tells me with substance that, you know what, yeah, I've, I've built something. There's some suggestion that perhaps society, these pillars, these traditional bastions of where we get meaning from. Let's take work as an example. In the last 20 years, the world of work has changed so much beyond belief that what used to be a job for life or certainly a career that would lead to almost in a guaranteed way if you worked hard to better things and promotions and so forth. I think for young people that in many context has been taken away so there's far more insecurity there and the ability for work to deliver the same sense of self-esteem has perhaps to some degree been eroded then you've got the traditional family now i'm not here to say whether these traditional pillars were good or bad but what i do know is if you take away pillars if we go back to the idea of a structure a building if we take away pillars and you don't put something in its place it becomes unstable so we're eroding a lot of kind of traditional values, traditional ways of being, and some of these things are important and it's important to question. But at the same time, if we take everything away, I think we're left with very little that can really give us a substantial sense of self-esteem. Now throw technology into the mix. So social media, the need for instant gratification, the need to make an immediate impression on people. Whereas in the past, we may have go back 100 years or even 50 years. If I wanted to know about someone's character, I might ask their neighbours. I might ask people who live in the community with them. Well, tell me about this Annalisa. What's she like? Is she a good egg? Is she someone I can trust? Nowadays, our sense of trust, our, our sense of belief in people is often, particularly for younger generations, it comes from the number of Instagram likes somebody has and the number of followers on Twitter. So that substance has fallen away. So I think that there's kind of lots of elements playing into this. I think we, in the absence of being able to tolerate frustration, perhaps, and build substance, which takes time, and from that derive self-esteem, that we're looking for more quick fixes, instant gratification, and we're promised that we can have it all. The Instagram world promises, I think all of us, and particularly young people, this is really dangerous, you can have it all. As long as you work hard enough or try hard enough or mm. go to the gym enough or change your features or have enough filler, you can have it all and none of us can have it all. This is part of this developmental process of having to come to terms with the real world, the ordinary life. Well, also what you're saying about when we lived differently, you'd ask somebody, what about that person? Now, really, the first thing most people do is they Google someone. And so what you get is either someone else's opinion of that person or the self that they have presented through social media, neither of which may be accurate. And I'm guessing if you're making assumptions about someone by what they've presented, and that is, you know, a false self or not very accurate self, then 
you never really get to know that person but moreover the person you think you're getting it's sort of self-perpetuating because you might say oh that person's always posting pictures of themselves and you either think they're really insecure or they're really full of themselves or they're really confident depending on how you view it but it seems to me that there's a lot of quite flimsy stuff going on (laughs) (laughs) flimsy seems like such an insubstantial word but I'm going back to what you're saying about an edifice needing scaffolding if you're Mm. not really sure who you are and if your echo back is someone who doesn't really know you or see you for whatever reason then I can see that maybe we are becoming more narcissistic I think your point's really interesting so this false self that is being presented that would be discoverable through Google or through Instagram following or whatever it might be But with that also, what is the effect on us? Because if we go back to the original story, narcissus needs echo just as much as echo needs narcissus. So if there are more narcissistically structured people out there or people who are expressing themselves with very narcissistic behaviour, it requires an echo for that to happen. If we don't pay much attention to these people, if we don't see them as false gods, then their power falls away. And I think that's key in all of this. When people come and see me, I tend to, one particularly where there's a degree of narcissism at play, I tend to talk about the ordinary life. How do you live the ordinary life? And I've had people turn around to me to say, oh, great, ordinary life, that sounds really boring. I don't want to be ordinary. Actually, particularly in this day and age, to be ordinary is rather extraordinary. To build something over a period of time and something I might be a house, it might be a business, it might be a career, it might be a relationship, it might be friendships. Hopefully, it's an amalgamation of all of those. You know, to build something and live a fulfilling life where your self-esteem is rooted in reality and in substance, that is not an easy task. And to ignore all the noise coming from the narcissists and the echoists who are following them and this is the way to live your life and this is a quick fix solution and therapy in five sessions will change your life and I can't promise any of that I'm not on TikTok but there's nothing I have to say on TikTok because I can't really sum anything up in two minutes it's complex we're all complex human beings and life is complex well it's everything on social media especially TikTok has been reduced down you know you make a cake Mm. in five seconds (laughs) but I think it's especially harmful actually where it's anything to do with behaviour, character, self-development. I think there's definitely no nuance on social media. No. We were talking earlier about transmitters, and I know you said something to me once which really stuck with me, which is that narcissists have emotional transmitters, but no, or very limited receivers. That really rang a bell for me. Can you talk a bit more about that? Mm. Yes, I I hasten to add, it's not something I came up with, but it's struck a chord with me as well. So if we take the sort of archetypal narcissist, it looks like narcissists are really quite good at knowing it's a he in the myth. So we can stick with that. But obviously women are just as capable of having narcissistic personalities as men. They seem to be very good at knowing their needs. They seem to be very good at taking up space. They seem to be very good at expressing themselves. So in this way, they're constantly transmitting to the world, this is who I am, this is what I need. But I think it's a bit more nuanced and complex than that because really what they need, they're too scared to broadcast out. What they really need is love. This is the cure to narcissism is love because of course, love is not adoration. 
you know, love is the integration of love and hate. So, you know, somebody that we love, we can also feel very annoyed with or at times hate their behaviour. But that doesn't mean that we don't love them. So what a narcissist needs to be able to tolerate in the world is being seen for who they are and loving others and being loved themselves for who they are. So going back to this idea of narcissists having transmitters but not having receivers, they transmit out what they want and they transmit out this confidence and they transmit out this false self. But in order to protect their very vulnerable core, they don't allow themselves to receive anything from anyone else. Because if they had to contend with someone else's feelings, I don't think in the, the vast majority of cases they would know what to do with that. So you know, what does that mean clinically? Well, actually, it, it might cause them to feel angry. It might cause them to feel dysregulated. It might cause them to get in touch with their own feelings, all of which needs to be defended against. So how do they defend against it? Well, it's very easy to deny someone else's feelings if you tell yourself, well, they're not a real person. They're of no value to me. They're a lesser human being. They're a woman, you know, use an awful misogynistic term. You know, they're a different race. I mean, we human beings have done this throughout our history. And of course, it, it continues to go on and on, a, on an individual level. A winning, if we use that term, narcissist might well say, well, you know what, it's just collateral damage, you know. I'm sorry people got hurt, but it's just collateral damage. But really what that person is saying is, I cannot allow these other people to be real people because I won't know what to do with it and it will render me terribly anxious. So I'm just going to couch it as, you know, this is a business approach to things and I'm just going to ride roughshod over them. It's like they can't allow themselves to tune in to be aware that other people have their own experience and own needs because well then they're going to have to contend with difference and then they're going to have to let go of the idea that they are omnipotent if we want to give a summary of what we might be dealing with in somebody who's got a real narcissistic personality style you're dealing with somebody who emotionally and psychologically is probably around 18 months to two years old and that's how they're operating. It's a form of developmental arrest, which is, that's very sad to think about it that way. Mm. It's not something they choose. I don't know if you use the word cure, but let's just go with that, that the cure for it is love. But if they can't receive it, mm. so can you have a relationship with a narcissist or a person with narcissistic tendencies? Well, the reason I made that differentiation is because, of course, it would be very sad to imagine that somebody who has got Bearing in mind, we're talking about a spectrum here, mm -hmm. a narcissistic personality style that there's no hope. It's hopeless. That's it. You know, you're going to forever be staring at the equivalent of your reflection in the pool. I don't think that needs to be the case. So when it comes to me, my job as a clinician is to have a relationship, a real relationship, a deeply intimate relationship, an ongoing relationship with all of my patients but because they're all different people the relationships are very different and with somebody who may have a narcissistic structure I think from the clinical literature we know that most psychotherapists would say they're not easy to work with and you require an enormous amount of patience and the job is to see if you can get beneath that and start to search for the real self and start to show them that actually if they do express their real self, their emotions, their needs, their thoughts, their wants, that they're not going to be shamed. I find it really helpful 
as I think do my patients. When a patient says to me, look, I'm really struggling to tell you this, but I feel really let down. When you said this last week, that really hurt my feelings. or I felt completely disregarded. And if they have the ability to say that, I think, wow, look at that. You know, that's a very relational way of operating and we can think about it together and I can own my part in that. And probably I, just, I got it very wrong because I'm a human and we can move on. And that forms the bedrock of being able to be in a relationship where, oh, relationships can endure even if there is some conflict, even if there's difference, even if I feel angry with my clinician. If you're listening to this, and you think you might be in a relationship with someone who has narcissistic tendencies, what can you do or what can you think about? Perhaps a better question, one I use in my clinical practice quite a lot is, look, is the person you're having a relationship, are they in a two-person relationship with you or a one-person relationship? And we explore what that means and we, we obviously gain some mutual understanding of what it feels like when you're in a relationship in a two-person world. And so... This patient might say to me, well, you know, when we hang out, they listen to me. Yeah, they sometimes disagree with me, but, you know, I have a good time. When I part company with them, I feel like I've had some contact. I feel uplifted. I've enjoyed myself. Well, I would suggest that's a two-person relationship. If you're in a relationship with someone who hasn't reached the developmental stage of operating in two-person relationships, and it feels very lonely, well, okay, what can you do? Well... You can bring your needs into the mix because with somebody who's got this narcissistic way of being, they are always unconsciously inviting the other to be echo. So in other words, mm -hmm. they're always inviting you, look, just shut up and listen to me. Just shut up and be there for my needs. So your job, listeners, is bring your needs into the mix. You know, if somebody dismisses you who you're in relationship with you can gently call them out and you can say hang on a minute I hadn't finished what I was saying or you know hurt my feelings a bit where you cut me off there mm -hmm. if they're open to hearing that if they say oh do you know yeah I'm sorry I've had a really stressful day at work oh, I apologize go ahead well we can all make that mistake can't we but if it enrages them and if it happens time and time and time again you may need to ask yourself not so much is this a narcissist because as hopefully we've discovered, I'm not sure how easy it is to define that for the layperson. It's certainly not simple for me to do either. But perhaps the better question is, do you know what? Is there really anything in this relationship for me? Am mm -hmm. I getting anything? And if you're not, well, maybe you want to question why you're in it. What about if you are listening to this and think, hmm, this sounds a bit like me. Is there anything you can do about that? Yeah. If there's people out there listening who think, oh, yeah, I can behave a bit like that at times or, or I can behave like that quite a lot or my relationships actually are a bit of a disaster and I notice I don't really have many friends and I've, you know, I'm middle-aged and I'm on my own, then yes, there is something you can do about that. I mean, and obviously I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm going to advocate for relational psychotherapy, which is coming back to the principle that what has been damaged in relationship, and that's what we're talking about here, these very early relationships with primary carers, what has been damaged in relationship can only be repaired in relationship. I often reference the sort of self-help section of the local bookshop. Why, A, is it there? And B, is it constantly populated by all these books? Because it doesn't lead ultimately to fundamental change. It might bring a little bit of insight or it might give some understanding, but change can only happen on this structural level through relationships. So if you do identify yourself and someone of what you, Annalisa, and I have been talking about today, then 
you know, it might be helpful to think about, okay, well, how would it be to see, first of all, if I could tolerate a bit more difference, if I could allow someone else's opinion, their values, their feelings, their ideas to matter? It doesn't mean that you need to take them on, but you can be present with them. What's it like to tolerate difference? And it might bring up some anxiety, but guess what? That's normal. You know, if somebody vehemently disagrees on a topic I'm passionate about, it brings up some irritation and anxiety. But it doesn't mean that I have the right to outright dismiss what they are saying. It's my job to notice that child part of me who is indignant that somebody else might have a different opinion and think, well, hang on a minute, you know, what makes me think I'm right? Maybe there's another angle to this. Maybe there are other ways of thinking about it. Maybe I can allow this person to have their experience without imposing my experience onto them. I think that's the mature position. So to what extent people are able to do that, it's an effort for all of us, but that's part of being an adult. And if they find it really difficult, then I think depth psychotherapy with a relational psychotherapist is probably the way to go. Thanks so much to Mark. I think the main takeaway for me was that someone with narcissistic qualities is very much in a one-person relationship with themselves. So it's important to take note of how you feel after being with someone you suspect of narcissism, because narcissists rarely leave you feeling good. Although that said, do note that narcissists can love bomb you in the beginning. If you'd like to learn more about Mark and his work, his website is brightonandhovepsychotherapy.com and if you like the sound of Mark then do look for the podcast we did on belonging which is in series 5 and still available The producer is Hester Kant the music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Lo Cole If you'd like to read my column it appears every Saturday in the Guardian Saturday magazine Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.